Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. When we were introducing the book of Job, and you, by the way, can turn to Job chapter 40, but when we were introducing the book of Job, I said that I had for a very long time believed that the book of Job was really about why men suffer, why people suffer. And especially when I was going through my own times of suffering, I took comfort in the book of Job because I believed that it gave some answer to why people go through the suffering that they go through. But the longer that I lived with the book of Job, the more I have come to understand and conclude that the book of Job is about why people worship God. And tonight, that's really what we're going to dig into. This is kind of the conclusion of the book of Job and we're going to see why people worship God. And it's real simple. It's real easy. We worship God because he's sovereign. We're not. It's really just that easy. He's so much higher than us. And he's about to confront Job with that very fact. That he encases himself in splendor. And Job is sitting on an ash heap and would love to be out of his own pain, his own misery, his own disease, his own cutting himself with potsherds. He would love to do that. And so God says to him, do what I do, array yourself in splendor. And because Job can't do that, it shows the distance between God and Job. And God is the one who points out that distance. To start with, we have to conclude that God is sovereign. Very frequently, people will put that in the vernacular of, I believe God is sovereign. But your belief doesn't enter into it. Your belief doesn't matter. Reality is reality, whether you believe it or not. For instance, my car is parked in the driveway here at GCA. That's a fact. When you guys were walking in tonight, did you see my car over there? Yes. Okay, well, whether you saw my car or not, that is where it is. Now, if you had walked toward the front door and not seen the car, and I said, my car is parked in the driveway here at GCA, you could say, I I don't believe it is. Except that it doesn't matter what you believe where facts are concerned. Because facts don't bend according to what you believe. There are a lot of people who say, I don't believe in hell. But that doesn't change the fact that hell exists. People say, oh, I don't believe in God. So, God exists. All of nature, all of creation, everything that exists screams loudly that a creator exists. And whether you believe it or not, doesn't even enter the conversation. And so as God is confronting Job here, he's confronting him on the basis of 
you and I are not equals here. And I am absolutely sovereign. I have already described that I made everything. I've created everything. I sustain everything. I think it's very, very interesting that when God looks at his creation, we as human beings think that God pays particular attention to us because, after all, we're humans. But God, in giving a demonstration of his control over all of creation, goes through a whole list of animals. Doesn't even bring up humans. Because God, when he looks on his creation, sees every slug, every bug, every giraffe, every... It's not just about humans. We, in our ego, think it's all about us. But God sees the entirety of his creation from the most distant star and galaxy down to the creatures of planet Earth. They're all part and parcel of what he has made, and he made them for his purposes, and he made them good. And he's satisfied with what he's doing in his whole creation. And then you show up, and you think you're going to question him? Since he is absolutely sovereign, it then just follows that whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, has to fall under his jurisdiction. It just has to. And since that's the case, you don't get to complain. Because if you complain about your life, your situation, what you're going through, whatever that complaint is, when you complain to God, you are essentially saying, you and I are equals. And I can complain to you because I'm on an equal plane here with you. And I can put my complaint forward to you and you are obligated to answer my complaint. And God's approach here to Job is just simply to demonstrate to Job that he, God, is completely and utterly sovereign and in charge. And that Job can't do anything. So that means... We're not equals. Even Isaiah says, God speaking, says as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how much higher my thoughts are than your thoughts. And that's how much higher my ways are than your ways. In fact, God makes the clear differentiation and says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. He says in another place, if I were hungry... I wouldn't tell you. The implication being, you can't do anything to help God. You can't do anything to satisfy God. What have you ever given to God that God then owes you and will pay you back because you somehow improved him? That's going to come up in the book of Romans. So throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, from the oldest writing to the newest writing of the Bible, we see this very consistent testimony that God is absolutely in control, absolutely sovereign, and importantly, he knows that. He knows that that's the situation. He gets it. He knows that he has encased himself in splendor. He knows that he has the highest dignity. He knows that he is the very embodiment of holiness. He knows that. And he knows you. And he knows that you're sinful and that you're depraved and that you're weak and that you're dying and that you're utterly, utterly dependent on him. 
So if something in your life is going in a way that you don't think it ought to, and you start complaining to God, you are essentially then putting God on trial, and no longer are you saying we are equals, you're saying I'm superior. I'm the one who knows what should be done in your creation, and you, the creator, ought to be listening to me and my opinion of how you get your work done. God doesn't stand for that. God makes it very, very clear that Job's opinion doesn't count. So much so that, as I said last week, God doesn't respond to any of the arguments between Job and his three friends. God just kind of leaves those arguments where they are. We're going to see one sentence from God tonight where it's clear that God knows what the argument was. God is aware what the argument was, but he doesn't address it. His response is, who are you and who am I? And you're nothing like me. So then how in the world are you going to hold me guilty to justify yourself? And that sentence, that idea, that concept of, are you going to make me guilty so that you can justify yourself is that equation that I just talked about where you've gone past thinking I'm equal with God to where you think that you're superior to God because you think that your opinion, your thoughts matter more than his thoughts, his sovereign way of doing things. So you've put yourself above God and God sees it as you're accusing me so that you can justify you. And why is that even fair in God's economy, considering that he's him and you're you, and you're nothing alike? It's amazing that when we start shouting at God, raising our fist at God, up on our hind legs telling God how we think things ought to get done, it's amazing that he doesn't flick us off the way dogs flick off a flea. I mean, he ought to just, bam, just like, I mean, we ought to just be... That's it. You're done. Hell forever. I don't need you. I don't need this aggravation. I don't need to hear from you. I'm God. I'm sovereign. I'm doing what I want to do. And your opinion counts for nothing. And what you believe doesn't matter. It only matters that you believe what God believes. God believes that salvation is wrapped up in his son. Oh, you should believe that. In fact, he gives you his spirit so that you can believe that. But if you believe that your opinion is superior to the opinion of God, he doesn't care. You mean nothing in that argument. You mean nothing in that discussion. Your opinion is less than insignificant, so much so that, as I said, After all that talk between Job and his three friends and all that theologizing and all that philosophizing and all that figuring out and God is like this and God is like that, God shows up and doesn't address any of it because those opinions don't matter. What matters is God says, I'm God. You're not. Therefore, shut up. You get it? You get the argument? And when God has that level of absolute sovereignty, absolute power, absolute control over his whole universe, 
You have no leave or warrant or invitation to say to him, I don't like how you do things. When Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind and then was restored to his right mind, he came to the conclusion that all the inhabitants of the earth were reputed as nothing. And that God does his own will among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth and then says, and no one can stop his hand and no one can say, what are you doing? So nobody gets to. Nobody gets to question what God's doing. You just don't get to. You never reach the point where you know so much that you're able to correct God in the way that he does things. And that means if you're doing well, thank him. That's just grace and kindness upon grace and kindness. If you're struggling, if you're suffering, if you're going through difficulty, that is God's absolute sovereignty. Paul says there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. I think it's very, very interesting that Paul's theology is not if you just have more faith, you can escape it. Instead, Paul's theology is God in his grace will give you the patience to endure what he's taking you through. And it's never God's purpose to take you through stuff to break you. It's never his purpose to destroy you by what he's taking you through. It's his purpose to build you up, to build up your faith, to build up your dependence and confidence in him. God knows what he's doing. And if he cares about you so eternally that he killed his son for you, don't you think that the things that he's going to bring into your life are going to work for your ultimate good? Isn't that the whole point of all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose? His purpose is to ultimately deliver you to the eternity that he has foreordained for you. And you don't understand the methods that he uses to accomplish that. So I said all that to say, our job is to bow to that sovereign God. Recognize that he has our best interest at heart. Not argue with him and recognize that we're not like him. And that we have no grounds on which we can demand of him that he answer us. You got that? Okay, that was all introduction and it's already 730. Chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, will the fault finder, he's speaking to Job and he's saying, you're looking for fault with me. You're finding fault with me. So you are the fault finder. Will the fault finder contend, argue, that's a word that means to to mox, to wrestle, to contend, to argue. Will you, the fault finder, contend with the almighty? Everything about that sentence is ironic because you can't wrestle with somebody who has all the power when you have no power. If he is almighty, you have no might. So then on what basis do you think you're going to contend or wrestle or box or argue with the one who has all the power? That's just dumb thinking. 
Look, if I wanted to go six rounds with Tom over here, I'm pretty confident that Tom would just beat the living way out of me, okay? Because Tom is much more athletic, and he's got more oomph behind his punch than I do. And he can hit me with a guitar in an El Cabong kind of fashion. So a smart man going in will know, you know, if I pick a fight with Tom, Tom is going to beat the crowd out of me. So the best option is don't fight Tom. You get it? God is saying, I have all the might. That means you have no might. And on what basis are you going to contend with me then? God does get rather sarcastic sometimes. So will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves, that means let him who is telling me how I should do things. He is reproving me. He's correcting me. He's giving me his opinion about how I ought to do things. So let the one who is Contending, the one who reproves God, let him answer it. In other words, God's saying, come on, tell me, tell me, on what basis should I respond to you? Verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am insignificant. I am nothing. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I'll answer no more. Even twice, I will add no more. Okay, so now he realizes that he's been very presumptive in the things that he has said. And that apparently God heard them and thinks that they're so insignificant that God is not going to give him an answer outside of defending that he himself is God. And that Job is just the fault finder. He's just the creature. And yet he thinks he's going to contend with the Almighty. So God is setting up the relative sides here. I'm the Almighty. You're the one who's in dust and ashes on an ash heap with sores running out. On what basis are you going to argue with me? And he's just told Job, I'm in charge of everything. I made everything. I hung the planets. What did I hang them on, Job? Oh, you don't know? Gee, tough. I'm the one that makes all the animals. I'm the one that feeds baby lions. I'm the one that takes care of everything. What have you done, Job? Where exactly are your bragging rights? So Job has heard all of that. And when God says, how do you contend with me? Job said, I can't. I shut my mouth. I'm done. Now, as I said last week, You would think that at that point, God would let up on Job and say, okay, you've learned your lesson. You've suffered for a while now. You've lost all your children. You've lost your wealth. You've gone through tremendous agony and pain. And then you've had your three friends making you feel even more guilty and telling you that you must have done something. Okay, you've been through enough. I'm going to let you up now. God doesn't do that. God brings the argument down to, who am I? And who are you? Here's the way the argument goes. Verse 6, then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. 
Remember uh, last week we saw the word whirlwind. And I said later it's going to be referred to as a storm. This is not a small gentle breeze out there in the Mideastern desert. This is a storm. God has shown up and a storm has erupted. And in the midst of the storm, God is speaking. That has to be kind of frightening. Once you see the natural forces all kicking up just because God is responding to you, you immediately get a sense of, I'm very, very small here. I'm I'm very insignificant here. God is in charge of all nature and keeps saying so. The Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Again, I think that's God's sarcasm. Yeah. I'm going to ask you, and then you give me the right answer. You instruct me. You teach me something, considering who I am and who you are. And he says, gird your loins like a man. In other words, the contrast is, Job kept saying, if God was here, I would demand that God gave me some answers. God would have to tell me why he's done these things. God would have to justify to me why it is that I, a righteous man who eschews evil, I've now suffered so greatly. God would have to explain that to me. But then notice when God shows up that he doesn't explain himself to Job. He says to Job, you explain yourself to me. And you gird yourself up like a man and you talk to me. I'm going to demand of you. You're going to answer me. First question. Will you really annul my judgment? Oh, man, what a great question. Will you really annul? That means get rid of. To say that something is null and void. And so God says, you're going through what you're going through because I decided this is what you're going to go through. But now you're arguing against me as if you shouldn't go through it. That argument says that my judgment is null and void. How dare you nullify my judgment? So notice that God does not just take it lightly. He doesn't take it as a light thing that someone would say to him, why are you doing this to me? How is this fair? How is this right? God's answer is, that's my judgment. There's nothing you can do about the fact that I'm sovereign and you're not. You're going to go through what I say you're going to go through. And if you answer back to it, if you don't like it, if you argue against it, and if you judge me for having done it to you, you're wanting to just nullify my decision for you, my judgment for you. One of the most elusive qualities of human life, I am absolutely convinced, is contentment. It's really hard to just be content, to just reach the point of saying, this is my life, this is what my life looks like, this is the way it turned out, and I can live with this. Paul argues that because of the things he had endured, because of his beatings and stonings and shipwreck and everything else, He said that he had learned that whatever state he was in, to be content. Now, where does that kind of contentment come from? 
It can only come from the knowledge that God is sovereign, that God does have your best interests in mind, and God is taking you through this for his own sovereign purpose. Once you know that, you can contentedly bow to his sovereignty and say, well, that's apparently what God has planned for me. And that, by the way, is a great place to get to. Tom is nodding vigorously. It's a great place to get to. I I think all guys eventually get there. I just lumped us in with all guys. Because when we're young, we're all full of testosterone and vim and vigor and I'm going to rule the world and all this kind of stuff. And so we're never happy. We're never content. We're never satisfied. We never reach the point where enough is enough. But then you live long enough where you realize that this is really the way your life turned out. And that despite your best efforts, this is how your life turned out. And you just kind of settle into it and say, well, this must be what God planned for me. And that contentment is great. You can put your shoulders down and you can exhale and you can kind of go, well, that's my life. (laughs) That's how that worked out. I feel like I've gone from I've got so many things to do to I need a nap. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, and if it's a good nap, you feel very content, don't you? <laughs> Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, you will instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? And then the parallel phrase is, will you condemn me so that you can be justified? Because any time that you say, I know better, I know how my life should go, I know what my circumstances should be, you are saying that God got it wrong. This is where God has brought you, this is what God has put you in, but God made a mistake and you're the one who knows better. And in that process, God sees it as you condemning him so that you can build yourself up, so that you can justify yourself. I know better. I know what ought to happen, and God doesn't know. And if if God knew what I knew, then doggone it, God would have done it differently. God says, that is a condemnation of what I've done. And how dare you condemn me just so that you can look better? Because again, remember, almighty, no might. So on what basis do you get to tell God, I know better than you do? Will you condemn me so that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? What that phrase means is, do you have the power that God has? His arm is his symbol of his might, of his strength, of his power. So here's a good general question for all of us. Do any of you have the might and power God has? No. Well, then, on what basis, since you don't have the might and power that God has, on what basis do you get to condemn his judgment to make yourself look good? You don't. You You just don't. You don't have that, as I said earlier, you don't have that leave or warrant or invitation. That is an encroachment on God. Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? When the Israelites got to Mount Sinai, when Moses went up to speak to God on Mount Sinai, 
there was a thick cloud that covered the mountaintop. And the voice of God was heard among the children of Israel at the foot of the mountain. And they panicked over it. It was scary. And so they say to Moses, you go talk to him and tell him not to do that anymore. Because that was frightening. Okay, so you've got a mass of about a million people. A rabble, all kinds of talk going on. But then when God speaks, it's overwhelming. It's frightening. And so God, knowing that about himself, says to Job, can you make your voice thunder the way I can? Look what God is doing. You're not me. You're not equal to me. You don't have my strength. You don't have my power. You don't have my arm. You can't even raise up your voice the way I can raise up my voice. Jesus spoke to storms on the sea, and they obeyed him. He said, be still. And the storm quit, the waves quit, the wind quit, because all of what we call nature obeys him. Luann, can you do that? No, you can't do that. See, there's a real basic demonstration of he can, you can't. So again, the argument is, on what basis then do you get to tell him you're wrong? <laughs> your, your judgments are not right. Verse 10. <coughs> do this. Now, I want you all to try this, okay? And I'm going to be watching to see how many of you do it right now, okay? <laughs> Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity. Go. You don't even know where to begin. You don't know where to start. Now that word eminence means to be high up, to be raised up, to be primary. And in heaven, God is the raised up on a throne, primary being. And he says here that he adorned himself with that. In other words... Among the infinite options available to God, he decided that this was how he would display himself. There are places where he appears to Isaiah, he appears to Ezekiel, and he is surrounded with angels and wheels upon wheels and a heavenly chariot with his throne on it. And, and when they see it, they're just overwhelmed by it and they fall down in front of it. God didn't have to do that. God also knows how to speak in a still, small voice. But when he wants to, he displays himself in absolute eminence and dignity. Dignity is a great word. He displays himself as being so lifted up, so righteous, so holy, that everything about him is uniquely good. He is uniquely qualified that everybody should worship him. Everybody should get down in front of him. Everybody is lesser than him. And so he says, yeah, you know why that is? You know why I'm all lifted up in eminence and dignity? You know why? Because I adorned myself that way. I chose to do that. Okay, now, Job, you do it. Okay, now, Jeff, you do it. Okay, now, Steve, have at it. You can't. You, just, you don't know where to begin. But this is, again, God saying, you're not like me. There's no way that you're anywhere near me. 
Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. God has angels that he created. He has living creatures that he created, multi-headed beings that he created, an angelic host that he created whose job apparently it is to do nothing but worship God constantly. They're in his presence constantly. They're the ones that are shouting for joy every time God does something. They're the ones that are crying out about his holiness. They're the ones that are taking their crowns off, as we see in the book of Revelation, and putting their crowns at his feet, at the feet of Christ, recognizing Christ as preeminent. Their whole job, their whole function is to worship God. God created them for that purpose so that he could display himself with honor and majesty. Go, Carol, do that. Where do you begin? Yeah. Are you starting to get some sense, some feeling for God is everything you are not? And that you have no basis on which to equate yourself with God? Because God knows that you're nothing like him. And so the assumption that you can stand in judgment over him is a completely false assumption because you don't even have the power to bring your judgment to fruition. It's one of the big differences between God and me, let's say. I have judgments. I have judgments all the time. I make decisions. I assess things, figure things out all the time. I do it all the time. But when it comes to really big, important judgments, like, let's say I determine I would like to grow more hair. And this is something that I figure on a fairly constant basis. I would also like to be taller, 6'2", a shock of blonde hair, and healthy. Oh, I'd like to be just so healthy and uh, able to run a four-minute mile. And, I mean, I would love to do that. Okay, so... So what's wrong with those judgments of mine? The thing that's wrong with them is I have no ability to do it. I can say to anybody, any random person, I can say, you're saved. And you know what that means to them? Nothing. It means nothing to them because I don't have the ability to save them. Now, if Christ says you're saved, well, then you're utterly, completely saved. Why? Because he has the power to make his judgments actually come to fruition. If Christ decides that I'm going to be 6'2 and blonde, then I'm going to be 6'2 and blonde. But if I decide it, I have no power. That's the problem I have. I can create this stuff. I can think this stuff up. I would love to eat nothing but cake and cookies and never gain any weight. That would be ideal for me. But I don't have the power to do it. And God has the absolute authority and the absolute power to bring his judgments to fruition. And that means 
I'm not like him. Are you getting the point yet? And if we're that much not like him, it was a good sentence. But if we're that much not like him, then again, on what basis do we get to hold him to account? On what basis do we get to say, I don't like the way you do things? God's argument is all, who am I? Who are you? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. You know what happens when God lets loose of his wrath? People die. Hail comes down from the sky and bursts into flame. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed with hailstones. When God decides to pour out his wrath, things happen. Can you do that? You might be angry at somebody, but all you can do is walk around fuming. All you can do is walk around going, I am so mad at them. But do you have any ability to really pour out not just your anger, but the overflowing of your wrath? And by the way, if you did pour out the overflowing of your wrath, whatever limited ability you have to do that, if you did it, you'd be wrong. But when God does it, he's right. He's holy. He's just. Whatever he does, by virtue of the fact that he is a good and just God, is then good and just. Was he right for destroying Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes. We'd have to say, well, that's what he did. So it's right. Was he right in saying that he was going to take the children of Israel into Egypt and put them in bondage for 400 years because the transgression of the Amorites had not yet come to the full. And then 400 years later, bring those Israelites as a great army back to the land that was promised to Abraham and then say, wipe those people out. Animals, children, everything, wipe them out completely. Was he right in doing that? There's no way after our human logic, our human sense of right and wrong, our human ethics, there's no way to say, well, that's, that's right. So if we did it, we'd be wrong. But when God does it, it's right because he's God and you're not. And God knows that, so he actually uses that as an argument against Job and says, Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and take him down. I'll pose it this way. Don't you love being around egocentric people? Don't you love being around people who are really braggadocious and full of themselves? Don't you really enjoy that? Yeah. Do you ever confront them and try to bring them down a peg? Yeah, that doesn't work. You know why? They're too full of ego and pride and self-assurance and... There's nothing you can do about them. Okay, now you've got a whole planet full of egocentric, prideful, arrogant people. And God says, do something about that, will you? You can't. You can't do anything about it except just like your anger. You can go home and fume about it. But you can't do anything about it. God says, I can. I can take them all down. (laughs) I think Sodom and Gomorrah applies here again. He took them all out. He took them all down. 
He can bring the ego of men under control. Verse 12 says the same thing. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. You can't do that. God does. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Can you do that? We can see so much wickedness in this world. There are so many things that we observe that we say, that's just wrong, that's just wicked. And even if the world accepts it and the world says this is a good thing, even if the legislature of New York and Virginia all get together as a group and say, yeah, that's a good thing, we can still look on it and say, that's wicked. Everything about me is appalled by the notion that New York and Virginia have agreed with the idea that you can kill babies after they're born. I'm appalled by the idea that you could abort babies, but now post-birth abortion, that's absolutely wicked. I am utterly appalled by it. What can I do about it? They voted it. They're doing it. It's going on. There's not a lot I can do about it except to use my voice to say, this is wrong. This is wicked. I can call people to change. I can call people to repent. But I can't make the wicked stop it. God says, I'm going to make the wicked stop it. That's why hell exists. Lake of fire. Outer darkness. At some point, he is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And a new Jerusalem wherein righteousness dwells, where even the pots and pans and the bridles on the horses are holiness to the Lord. He can do that. He can crush wickedness. We can't. Again, that's the difference between him and us. His almighty power, our lack of power. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. In other words, they came from the dust. Kill them all off and let them go back to the dust. You don't have that ability. Bind them in the hidden place. That's all that hell, lake of fire, outer darkness stuff. Bind them up and send them to their just desserts. You can't do it. God can. Okay, so now I've been belaboring these points. Because I want you to understand what God is getting at with each of these points. Because there's a conclusion to these points. And that's verse 14, because here is God's point. Point by point, as I've gone through these, I have said, can you do it? And you have said, no, I can't do that. Point by point, I've been saying, is that God? Yes. Is that sovereignty? Yes. Is that almighty power? Yes. Can you do it? No. Why? Because you're not sovereign. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. Okay, that's the distance between you and God, and we have all agreed to God's formulation of the distance between us. Now God asks this pointed question. If you can do any of those things, then I will confess to you. Then I will admit to you, Job, since you're telling me you don't like the way I do things. I will admit to you that you're right and I'm wrong as soon as you array yourself in splendor. 
as soon as you denounce the, the wicked and actually mete out judgment on them. As soon as you bring all the ego of the world under control. As soon as you do any of those, I will then admit to you that your own power, your own right hand can deliver you, can save you. I don't think he's just talking about eternal salvation, redemption. I don't think he's just talking about that. What he's saying is, yes, Job, I understand that you are in pain. I understand that you've gone through loss. I understand that you are in desperate sickness at this point. And you want very badly to be the cause of your well-being. You want to be restored. You want to be saved. Once upon a time, you sat in the gate, and everybody used to do obeisance to you. Once upon a time, you had a great reputation. Young men wouldn't speak around you, and old men would listen to you when you spoke. Once upon a time, you were a very dignified, high and mighty guy. And you want to be restored to that. And you can't do it. And if you can't do that, you can't do anything else that I do. So if you want to contend with me, if you want to argue with me, if you want to say that what I'm doing isn't right, then do one little part of what I do. Be like me in any one little way, and then I'll admit to you that you have the power to save you. And if you don't, if you can't, if you won't, you don't have the power to save you. Now, can we apply that in a New Testament context? Absolutely. I think that is the very essence of everything we believe about sovereignty and about grace. You can't save you under any circumstances because you don't have the power to save you. It doesn't matter how righteous or good you try to be. It doesn't matter how many rules you obey. You don't have the ability to impress God enough that God would say, well, okay, you have added enough goodness to yourself that I'm going to save you on that basis. Or what if God says, you're not saved. Go into outer darkness. Does anybody have the ability to say, no, I'd rather not. No, I'd rather stay here in your presence. No, I'd rather remain here in heaven now that I see it. It's very grand. It's very glorious. I prefer to stay here. I don't like that worm never sleeps thing. I'm not fond of the fire never being quenched. I prefer to stay here. I will save myself. God's answer to everybody who thinks in any of those ways is be like me. And then I'll admit to you that you can save yourself. And since we've all just agreed across the board that we can't be anything like him, let's start with a basic thing. He ever lives. We die. Okay, there's a big difference. He's holy. You're a sinner. He's all powerful. You have no power. There's just so many things. He knows all things. You know very few things. You are dependent on him in order to know anything. The breath that's in your nostrils belongs to him. The air you breathe is his air. The food you eat is his food. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord. The whole of creation was his idea. You didn't come up with it. 
So the contrast is absolutely enormous. And then he poses the question, which I think is a, more of a conundrum. He poses the question, can you do what I do? And if you can't, then you can't argue with me. So we got nothing. We got no basis on which to argue based on who God is and who we are. And in our ego, in our pride, we, we do it anyway. <laughs> we, we like to say, why God? Well, that's one of the questions that God just does not take kindly to. God doesn't like the why questions. The answer is always, who are you? Who are you to answer against me? Now, this same concept is in the book of Romans. Shows up again in Romans 9. We'll see it coming up in the weeks and months ahead. That some people will say, how God is in that whole sovereign and election thing, that's not fair. And his answer is, who are you? Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing made argue with the one who made him and say, why did you make me like this? The potter has the power over the clay to make anything he wants any way he wants. And the clay doesn't get to stand up and say, why am I an ashtray? I wanted to be a Ming vase, you know. We just don't have any authority. We don't have any power. So if it's true that we don't have any power, look, I'm sure you get it by now. I know that I'm dead horse beating at this point, but I like dead horse beating just to drill it into you. Because I promise you, I guarantee you that before long, you're going to start thinking, why? Why this? Why now? Why is this happening? This isn't fair. That's not right. God shouldn't have done it this way. Why have you made me like this? Why am I going through this? Why do I have these circumstances? And God's answer is not to explain himself to you. God's answer is, who am I? Who are you? And you just don't have any authority then to tell him that he's wrong. You got that? Any questions about that? Okay, then, dead horse beating is over for the evening. <laughs> we will resume it again soon. I actually do have a question. Okay. So, we have a friend who truly went through a significant number of trials, being arrested for a crime he didn't commit, having a wife who had an incurable brain tumor, 17 surgeries, strokes, etc. Um, great financial difficulty, and one day, in a life of faithfulness and recognition, always recognizing God is sovereignty, he knelt down and said, God, can I get a break? Now, I think I've been there, and I have a lot of trouble criticizing that prayer even though he was doing just what Job was doing. Mm -hmm. I think all of us in this human fleshly condition can relate. We can all understand how you got there. The point is, is God obligated to respond to your criticism of him? 
And God's answer tonight was... And I, and I don't think he was criticizing. I think he was begging for relief. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. David I, did it too. <coughs> hmm? David begged for relief. Absolutely. David begged and for mercy. And you know, I say go to God about everything. Pray about everything. And if you're in pain and if you're in sorrow, take your sorrows to God. We're told to do that, to bring our petitions to God with thanksgiving. I mean, I tell people pray about everything. But then, having done that, I think we have to accept the outcome as the will of God. And I think there's a difference between prayer is an acknowledgement that God is in control of the situation um, and an acknowledgement that he's the one that can change it as opposed to the self-made man idea that it was a mistake as opposed to this is something that's been brought upon me and God can deliver. On purpose. Yeah. yeah. I've said it for so many years. If you realize that your suffering has purpose, that it's not purposeless, if there is such a thing as purposeless suffering in the world, then that makes God cruel. Mm -hmm. That makes God capricious. But if you know that the difficulties of this life have purpose, then that makes them sort of easier to endure because you recognize that God is doing it to you on purpose. And that very much like what I quoted earlier, there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man, recognizing as you're going through it that God knows and he's going to bring you through it. And by the way, at the end of the book of Job, which we'll get to next week, at the end of the book of Job, God restores Job. So God knows, and God's going to ultimately reward Job and give him many more years of life and sons and daughters again. And it's even going to say how beautiful the daughters are. So... It's all going to come around again, but Job went through this on purpose, I believe, and it's recounted for us so that we understand the relationship between us and God. Anything else? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.